This evening's scripture reading will be read from John chapter 4, verses 35 through 38. John chapter 4, verses 35 through 38. Say not ye that are there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Another, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. In our lesson tonight, we're going to be looking at John, the fourth chapter, the passage that Isaiah read just a moment ago. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 38. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 35 through 38. Many years ago, there was a slogan that was often employed. The U.S. government actually employed this slogan to encourage men and women to consider the military. And the slogan simply said, Uncle Sam needs you. I believe and am convinced that from a spiritual perspective, the Lord needs you. He needs you and he needs me. Because ultimately, we are the hands, the feet, and the mouth to ultimately distribute the gospel to a lost and dying world. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the Lord needs you. And I want us to think for just a moment or two about what is recorded in John chapter 4, verses 35 through 38, as we consider this theme. Jesus, as you recall in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, is engaged with a conversation or engaged in a conversation with a woman from Samaria. And Jesus took the opportunity to identify himself to this particular woman as the Messiah, the anointed one. And so it is in this context that Jesus talks about the need for laborers in his kingdom. And so I want us to think about that for just a few moments tonight. The first thing that I want to call your attention to as we look at John 4 is the readiness of the harvest. Now I said that the Lord needs you. He needs me. And one of the reasons the Lord has need of us is because of the readiness of the harvest. When I think about the readiness of the harvest, what comes to my mind is the conditions. In other words, the time is ripe. And that's really what Jesus is saying in John chapter 4. Look if you would at what he says. In verse 35, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Jesus here is talking to his disciples and he is telling them that the fields are ripe, the conditions are ripe, if you please, for the harvest. We look around in our society today, in our country, and I believe that in a similar vein, 
The conditions are ripe for harvest. You might well ask the question, why would that be the case? Why is it that the conditions today are such that the fields are ripe or ready for harvest? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, I believe that the readiness of the harvest is reflected in our economy. There are a lot of people in our world today, and particularly in our country, that are concerned about the economic state of things, and rightly so. But isn't it the case that if there is anything that maybe we have learned as a result of the downturn in our economy, is that things can change literally overnight. Individuals who at one time may have had thoughts of retirement, maybe they had a great deal of wealth tied up in stocks or bonds, mutual funds, etc. Many of those people have now lost a great deal of their wealth. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. There is a reason why we are instructed not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth because ultimately what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6 is those things, that is the material side of life, can vanish overnight. Now he talked about when we lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, moth and rust destroy. He said thieves break in and steal. And so his exhortation, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because when you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, you are laying up treasures that cannot be touched with the defilements of this life. When we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, we are laying up for ourselves treasures that are immune to a changing economy, to thieves, to moths, to rust, to destruction. And so, the economy. And listen also to Jesus in Luke chapter 12 at verse 15. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Why? Because a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. There are a lot of people in our world today, they have literally hooked their wagons to the world. And everything that they have, earthly speaking, is tied to their wealth or to their material goods. And so if they lose that, then to them it is devastating. Well, I believe that because of the change in our economy, the fields are, are ripe, are ready. For harvest. Listen also to Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 at verse 10. He said, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. And so the idea is that there are people in our world today, maybe they have bought into the material side of life, maybe they bought into this idea that money is what's the most important thing to garner how quickly people change when they lose it all. It's quite possible that now people are ready to hear the gospel because of a changing economy. 
Another reason I believe that there is a readiness of the harvest is because of emptiness. And this is somewhat tied to the first point, that being the material side of life. Look around and note the number of people that literally have everything that this world has to offer. They have all of the gimmicks and all of the gadgets. They have all of the bells and the whistles. Everything that supposedly will make one happy, they have it. They have the finest clothes. They have the most luxurious automobiles. They live in the nicest homes. They eat in the finest restaurants. They have everything that you would think someone would want or need to be satisfied in this life. And yet, underneath all of that, they're not happy. They're not satisfied. They are empty. Why is that? Why is it that people are empty? Maybe they have everything that this world has to offer, but they're empty. A good case study would be the life of Solomon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon places life under a divine microscope and Solomon was the individual of his day that had it all. Not only did Solomon have it all, he tried it all. He said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that whatever his eyes desired, he kept, not, he kept them not from it. I think about somebody who if they saw something, they wanted it, they got it. That was Solomon. And Solomon realized that ultimately, if you gain the world and you have everything that this world has to offer, there is still this void or vacuum in the human heart. There is this emptiness. There are a lot of people today in our society, they have everything, materially speaking, but they are empty. There is still this void or vacuum that exists in their heart. Why is that? Because materialism money, the things of life, they are not going to, to fill that void. The only thing that I know that will fill that void and satisfy the soul of man is God. That's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, hear the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole some translations say this is the whole duty. The word duty is not in the original text. And Solomon is saying that the whole of man's existence is to fear God and keep His commandments. That's what life is all about. That's what's going to bring you satisfaction. We talk about the world being ripe for harvesting. Well, I believe it's because people are empty, by and large. Again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, Solomon said, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, and he who loves abundance with increase. And Solomon is simply saying this, that the more you have, the more you want, and the more you get, the less satisfied you'll be. You may think it'll satisfy you, but it won't. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If you and I gain the world, if we have all of the power and all of the pleasure, 
and all of the, the material goods of this life, but we lose our soul. And we've lost it all in the eyes of God. And so the harvest is ready. The readiness of the harvest. The conditions are ripe. Why? Because of, because of our economy. Because of this emptiness. Then I would also suggest because of evil. I said just a moment ago, when you look at John chapter 4, you read of Jesus engaged in a conversation with a woman from Samaria at Jacob's well in Sychar. And in chapter 4, verse 9, the Bible says that the Jews have no dealings or had no dealings with the Samaritans. There was enmity between these two groups of people. They didn't like each other. The Jews looked unfavorably upon the Samaritan people. They viewed them as half-breeds. They were prejudiced in their hearts towards the Samaritan people. Well, Jesus had a conversation with this woman. And during the course of their conversation, Jesus said, Go and call your husband. And she said, Sir, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have well said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. Here was a woman that had been married five times and she was now living with a man. But Jesus made an impact in her life. There are a lot of people in our world today, they're living in a state of immorality, just like this woman. Their life is not what it should be. Maybe their lives have been given over to promiscuity. Maybe their lives have been consumed by alcohol, by drugs. Whatever the case may be. And it might be that in light of their spiritual state in life, the time is ripe. This woman was ripe for the picking, as we say sometimes. She wasn't happy. She wasn't satisfied. Her home life had been a wreck. Her spiritual life, a train wreck. And yet this woman went out and began to, to proclaim to other people, other Samaritans, come see a man that's told me everything I've ever done. Jesus had a profound impact on her life. Many of the Samaritans believed on him because of her testimony. And so I think about people today in our world, in our country, whose lives are not what they should be, and maybe they know that, maybe they don't. But you and I have the opportunity to take the gospel to them. You know, there are a lot of people in our world today, they have difficulty understanding the nature of the church. And there are a lot of people that will use hypocrisy as a, as a crutch to hurl insult and ridicule at the church of Christ. The last time I checked, the church is like a hospital. Hospitals are for sick people. The church is for sick people. When we go out and evangelize, we're going out not to people who are well, not to people who are spiritually okay. We're going out and talking to people who are sick in sin. Was that not what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 at the house of Matthew, the tax collector? 
He said, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The world is right. Our country is right. And then also I would suggest there is a readiness of the harvest because of error. I don't know about you, but I watch some of these guys on television, these so-called tele-evangelists. And I watch with dismay their, their gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And I'm convinced that there are people in our country that are tired of that stuff. They're tired of turning on the television and watching these guys try to bilk them out of their life savings. You know, John talked about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, that there is a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. And I think that there are people in our world today who are smart enough, who are intelligent enough to see through the charade of some of these people. And they can see that they're nothing more than modern-day charlatans. They claim to do great works and they claim to perform miracles and all this other kind of stuff. With regard to the miraculous, I would simply say this. As goes the proposition, so goes the demonstration. These guys that claim they can perform miracles, well, just show us. Just prove it. Go down to St. Jude Hospital and heal, heal the young children in that hospital and we'll believe you. The fact of the matter is they can't perform miracles. They're just praying on innocent souls. But I say all of that to simply reinforce this idea that there are people in our world today, in our society, in our country, they're tired of the error. They're tired of hearing people propagate something that does not coincide with New Testament teaching. And so you and I, we have the opportunity to sit down and talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ as Paul talked about. Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, our Lord. Watch these guys on television. They're not preaching the Lord. They're preaching themselves. What people are interested in our world today, they're interested in Christ, in the gospel. And then finally, I would also suggest that there is a readiness of the harvest because of education. You and I, we have been blessed to live in a golden age. The technology that is around us is absolutely staggering. And I think about all of the academic institutions in our land and the opportunity before young and old alike to gain a great education. But there are a lot of people that maybe they thought if they could only attain a degree from this institution or if they could only climb the ladder of academic success that they would be happy that they would be satisfied they're ever learning as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7 but they never come to the knowledge of the truth well I think that there are people out here maybe they've been in these institutions of higher learning and maybe they have heard these science or biology professors talk about how 
life is a result of evolution or some cataclysmic explosion, and they haven't bought into that. And maybe they realize that some of the things that are being propagated in the name of education is just not so. Like what Paul said to the Gentile people in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, when he said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Even though we live in a golden age of education, the fields are ripe. Because education, by and large, is not going to satisfy that deep yearning of the human soul. But then secondly, we think about the readiness of the harvest, but then reapers are needed for the harvest. Look at what Jesus said. Look again at verse 35. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their rest." Over in Matthew chapter 9 at verse 37, Jesus said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth laborers. That's what we need today. We need Christians who are willing to labor for the cause of Christ. What kind of spirit should prevail in the lives of of those of us who claim to be members of the body of Christ. When we talk about reapers needed for the harvest, what should be our attitude? Number one, there has to be a ready heart. I think about it this way. There are three things that come to my mind. We need to be ready, we need to be willing, and we need to be able. What about being ready? I had a friend of mine that I used to visit with on, on a regular basis. He and I would go out and, and visit the sick. We would try to encourage people who were not members of the church to study and to, to consider becoming New Testament Christians. And I would call him and ask him if he, if he happened to be ready to go without exception. It seemed like he would always come back and say to me, I'm sitting on go. That's what we need in the church today. People who are sitting on go, who are ready. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 19. In Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. When I think about a ready mind, there's an account that comes to mind from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, we read of the Apostle Paul and some of his fellow disciples. They were in, in Caesarea. And while there, a prophet by the name of Agabus came and took a belt that Paul owned and bound his hands and feet. And he used that as an object lesson to tell him that when he went to Jerusalem, that the Jews would bind him up and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And behind all of that was encouragement for the Apostle Paul to not go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, listen, he said, I'm ready not only to be bound, 
but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to me, that is somebody who is ready. To me, that's somebody who's sitting on go, who's willing to do whatever it takes to exalt the name of Christ. We need reapers today. We need Christians today who view themselves as laborers. We're laboring for the cause of Christ. So there has to be a readiness, but then also a willingness. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul talked about the abundance of the funds that had come forth from those who were in poverty from Macedonia, he made a statement that I think is applicable to what we're talking about. He said, if there is first a willing mind. You ever thought about the power of the human will? You know, most of us, if we set our mind to do something, if we say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, we can typically do it. Now, granted, there are maybe some constraints in terms of what we might want to do or choose to do. But it all begins with a willing mind. In John 7, verse 17, Jesus said, If any man wills to do his will. You see, you have to have the will to do the will of God. Those who are going to be laborers, those who are going to be reapers in the kingdom of God, they have to have a willing heart. And so I ask you tonight, are you ready? Are you willing? In other words, are you willing to do whatever is necessary to advance the cause of Christ? I would like to think that one day when you and I stand before God on the day of judgment, that we can say we expended every ounce of ability that He gave us for His cause. Wouldn't you like to be able to say to the Lord, everything that you gave me in the realm of ability, I used it for your glory and your good. How are you going to do that? You've got to have a ready heart and you've got to have a willing heart. But then also, you've got to be able. Ready, willing, and able. When I think of the word able, there's an account found in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 14, in which Jesus is in the home of Simon. And you can read one of the parallel passages in the other gospel narratives. And you'll read of Mary breaking an alabaster box or flask and anointing Jesus with oil. She was chided for doing that by some of the other people. And Jesus said, let her alone. She's done a good work for me. But couched in that context is a statement that I think is pertinent to our lesson. Here's what Jesus said in verse 8. She has done what she could. Now I want to ask this question in a very candid and honest way. If you were to evaluate your life, could you say you have done what you can for the cause of Christ? Jesus said, she's done a good work. She's done what she could. Have you done what you can 
for the cause of Christ? Have you done what you could for the cause of Christ? I mean, after all, is that not what Christianity is about? Did Jesus not say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven? When we engage in the various works of the church, we do so, why? To bring honor and glory to God. And then finally, the reward from the harvest. And this has to do with the crown that awaits us. Look again at what Jesus said in verse 36. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. There are two things that I want you to think about. When we talk about the reward from the harvest, now granted, those who are going to get a reward are those who have been out reaping, reaping in the fields, those who have been out working or laboring. And it might be the case that the Lord, if he were present today, would ask you, why do you stand here idle all day? Based on Matthew chapter 20, verse 6. But what about this reward from the harvest? Jesus talked about those who reap receive wages and they gather fruit for eternal life. Two things. Number one, we must save ourselves. There is personal responsibility here. You and I have the responsibility to save ourselves. If we save the world and lose our own soul, well, we've lost something very important. Now, Paul had such immense love for his brethren in Judaism that he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and supplication to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And Paul was willing to suffer loss himself if it meant the salvation of his Jewish kinsmen. But when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he talked about buffeting his own body, keeping himself in check so that he did not lose his eternal reward. Well, you and I, we have the responsibility of saving ourselves. And I think about on Pentecost Day when the Apostle Peter spoke to multitudes of people and he said, save yourselves from this crooked or perverse generation. There is responsibility that rests upon us. But not only do we have the responsibility of saving ourselves, but the Bible says that we're to save others. And in this context, that's what we're talking about, reaching out and saving others. What about you? Who are you going to take to heaven with you? I want to go to heaven, but I want to take other people with me. There's a song that we sing on a regular basis, or maybe not on a regular basis, but we sing it somewhat frequently. And it pictures the judgment. And in that song, maybe it's in the chorus. The statement is made, you never told me about him. Can you imagine standing before Almighty God on the day of judgment? And here are these great multitudes of people 
people that we ate with, people that we played ball with, that we played golf with, that we lived next door to, that we had family get-togethers with, that we worked beside, that we sat in class beside, and there at the judgment, and they see us, and they say, you never told me about him. That frightens me. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, what is our joy, our hope, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our hope. If I understand what Paul is saying there, Paul is saying that his crown of rejoicing will be when the Lord comes and he's standing among that great multitude or host of people and he looks over and he sees these saints from Thessalonica that have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, saved, redeemed, and heaven bound. Now what about you? Christianity is the greatest religion known to man. Luke said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We have the gospel. We have the truth of God. Would it not be a tragedy to take it to the grave? Why not share it? Why not reach out and talk to people about the Lord? Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Solomon said, He that wins souls is wise. Are you a soul winner for Jesus? All of us have the ability to lead others to Christ. We can talk to other people. We can be an example to other people. We can give them a tract. We can give them a CD, a cassette. We can set up a study with somebody else. Listen, if you don't feel like you have the knowledge to study with somebody, if you'll contact me, if you'll contact one of the elders, if you'll contact somebody in this congregation, we'll make sure that they're taught. We have all the resources. We have the tools the question is, do we see the fields white to harvest? What will you do to help expand the borders of the kingdom in this community? If you're here tonight, maybe you're not a Christian, could we encourage you to begin that Christian walk tonight? Jesus, while he was upon this earth, said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, verse 6. Jesus came to give you life. What do you need to do? Believe he's the Son of God. John 8, 24. Repent of every sin. Acts 2, verse 38. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. The washing away of your sins. Acts 22, 16. Maybe you're here tonight. You're not faithful. Maybe you haven't done what you can do. 
for the cause of Christ. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. We would be more than happy to pray with you and for you. The Bible says confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to do that for you tonight as we stand and sing.